The Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 63, reading verses 7 through 9. This is the word of God. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord. Because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not act deceitfully. And he became their savior in all of their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and pity, it was he who redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all of the days of old. And a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. And there he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, I'm going to be quite honest with you this morning. I do not like this story from Matthew's Gospel. It's one of those texts the feminist theologian Phyllis Tribble probably would label a text of terror, although her work was in the Old Testament. But this New Testament story about the murder of innocent children would fit right in with some of the worst atrocities found in the Hebrew Scriptures, although it's not like the world's gotten any better. Well, just two weeks ago, as I do most Sunday evenings, I watch 60 Minutes, and there was a Scott Pelley piece about Uh, hospitals and medical clinics in Ukraine that have been targeted by Russian forces, either by uh, direct attacks with rockets, cruise missiles, artillery, or indirect strikes against civilians by striking the electrical grid so that medical services are interrupted. The crux of the article was about the fate of the most vulnerable clientele, 
pediatric oncology patients. Yes, that's right, children with cancer. Doctors and nurses from St. Jude's and other charities were risking life and limb going into a war zone and under cover of darkness, sneaking children and their parents, uh, the sickest ones at least, across the Polish border so they could continue their life-saving procedures and treatments. And frankly, it sickens me to think that children battling cancer and their parents have become, they're not just collateral damage here, they are actually part of a strategy that the Russians are using to wear down Ukrainian resolve. These children are being used as pawns in a geopolitical land grab. And I'd like to think that we as a society have moved beyond, but perhaps that's just my own naivete. Our time is not really so different from the time of our ancestors. In fact, most scholars think that's what Matthew is trying to do here, to link the story of Jesus and his parents' uh, flight to Egypt in his time to the ancient and familiar story, at least for the, the Jewish audience that he'd be writing to, the story of the Israelites in the time of captivity in the land of Pharaoh, that Herod's unbelievably cruel order to murder innocent children is an echo or a repetition of Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew sons in the time of Moses some 14 centuries earlier. Now, from a chronicler's standpoint, there's a narrative link that Matthew is trying to establish between the life of Moses, who freed his people from bondage so long ago, and the life of Jesus, who will free God's people in a different era and in a different fashion. Now, in full disclosure, I will note that some scholars will go so far as to say that this atrocity didn't happen, this murder of innocence. And it's true that it's not mentioned in any of the contemporary accounts made during the reign of Herod the Great that have survived to modern times, but 2,000 years is a long time, and accounts can be lost in the fog of history. Plus, the non-biblical records that did survive reveal that Herod was, in fact, a brutal ruler. Uh, he executed one of his wives out of ten. Uh, he had three of his own sons and two brothers-in-laws executed. When Emperor Augustus heard that Herod had killed his own children, he quipped, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. And it wasn't just brutality towards his own family. One of Herod's biggest miscues was in an oath, uh, in a, a move of fealty to um, Rome, he placed a golden eagle statue above the gate into the temple uh, in Jerusalem. A couple of rabbis had come there to worship as they were wont to do, and when they saw it, they declared that it was an abomination, and so they took it upon themselves to grab axes and to go up and physically remove it from the temple wall. When Herod heard that his public art had been uh, desecrated, he asked that these rabbis be brought before him. They were brave and did not deny that they had done this, so he ordered that they be burned alive. And this led to crowds of Jews in Jerusalem taking to the streets and rioting for days uh, because he put these holy men to death, um, and that rebellion had to be put down with great loss of life. I think one of the more curious stories about Herod was he knew he was not beloved. In his old age, as he was dying from kidney failure, uh, he told one of his wives that he was worried that when he died that instead of 
the country going into a national period of mourning, that they would in fact go into a period of, of feasting and celebration. And so he hatched this most diabolical plot. He sent soldiers out into Judea and grabbed sons from prominent families, 300 of them from different villages and towns all over, and he uh, imprisoned them in the Hippodrome that was down near Jericho. Herod's order was that when he died, that his soldiers were to go and to kill these 300 young men so that the entire population would go into mourning uh, when he died. Thankfully, at his death, his wife lied and claimed that he had changed his heart and mind, and the men were released. So could Herod have ordered the murder of children? I think it's highly possible, probable even. But it does beg the question, how did this despicable human being become the ruler of Judea, the king of the Jews? Well, you can blame the Romans. I have to back up in history a bit. You remember from Sunday school that after the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they took the wealthiest and most influential uh, residents of Jerusalem uh, back to uh, Babylon in a time that we call the exile. And they lived there for a generation until the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus adopted a different strategy on how to deal with conquered people. Rather than subjugate them and keep them prisoner, he decided to assimilate them. And so he ordered that all captured peoples, including the Jews, were to be sent home. And they could enjoy self-rule with one hitch. They would pay taxes. It was during this time that the Second Temple was constructed. The empire was divided into regions called satrapies, administered by a governor, a system of semi-independence that worked roughly for 200 years until the rise of the next empire. And you'll remember this from your uh, school lessons, when Alexander the Great in 334 BC swept across the known world, uh, pushed up to the Indus River, and it was written that he wept for there are no more worlds to conquer. Well, Alexander died in 323, and his empire was divided, subdivided into four kingdoms ruled by his chief generals. Ptolemy was given Egypt, and that kingdom stretched north to Damascus, and so it incorporated the area around Jerusalem, and in, so long as the people paid taxes, they were left alone by Ptolemy, although it did encourage a sizable portion of the Jews to move to Egypt, the beginning of the diaspora. To the north and the east was the Seleucid kingdom. Over time, Seleucia started eyeing the lands and tax base that Ptolemy had. And so he attacked pitched battles that lasted for decades. Uh, the border was pushed all the way to Sinai. And so for the next several decades, there were four different wars fought right around Jerusalem. And so the people there were caught in the middle. It was a time of instability, insurrections and rebellions that were happening all over the former empire. And the rulers were constantly having to go and quash internal rebellions and uprisings. And it came to a head in Jerusalem when one of Seleucid's sons, Antiochus Epiphanes, captured the city and put to death any inhabitants he thought were pro-Ptolemy. And he plundered the temple's treasure and erected a statue to Zeus. Think about this. In the temple, a statue to Zeus, and then abomination of abominations, he sacrificed a pig there. Now, he later contracted a wasting disease while he was on a campaign in the east, and the Jews believed that this was God's punishment for his desecration of the temple. But what it also did was it fired up the people. Um, it, it gave them the courage to have an internal rebellion, and so the, the Jews, under the leadership of a priest named Maccabeus, were able to throw off the yoke of their now weakened oppressors, 
And the first thing they did was rededicate the temple. I'm sure you know this story. There was only one day's worth of oil, but the, the lamp miraculously burned for eight nights. Happy Hanukkah. This ushered in a sweet spot in Jewish history where the Jewish people had their own rulers in a time of autonomy, a period known as the Hasmonean Kingdom. Now, alas, it only lasted roughly 100 years. In 64 BC, the next empire's army came, and you can guess who this was, Rome. The last independent ruler of the Hasmonean dynasty was Salome Alexandra, who took over the throne when her husband died, and she appointed her eldest son, Hyrcanus, as high priest, and he became the king at her death. And this did not sit well with his brother, Aristobulus, who immediately hired mercenaries and went to war against his brother. And then they locked in a stalemate. And both sides asked the Romans for help. Now, Hyrcanus had a high-ranking officer in his court, a man named Antipater I, the Imidaean, who had the knack for aligning himself with future winners. Now, he had been born an Edomite, but he'd converted to Judaism so that he could serve his Jewish king. And Hyrcanus thought he was loyal. When General Pompey marched into Judea carrying the banner of the Roman Republic, Antipater flipped and made a deal with the Romans. Now, the Hasmoneans, their, their armies were no match for Roman phalanxes and were quickly defeated. And Hyrcanus thought the deal he had made was that he would be restored as king. But instead, as kind of a sop, they gave him the high priesthood. His brother, meanwhile, was hauled to Rome in chains. And for his newfound loyalty, Antipater was set up as a client ruler for the Republic, and he was then given the right to levy taxes. Now, his political savvy didn't end there. When the Civil War erupted back in Rome, and Julius Caesar chased Pompey across the Mediterranean to Egypt, Antipater sent troops to bolster Caesar. And when the Senate assassinated Caesar on the Ides of March, Antipater sided with Crassus over Mark Antony. And such fateful political alliances meant that he had the right to place his sons, Asalus and Herod, as governors of Jerusalem and Galilee, respectively. Now, the Romans were satisfied having this nominally Jewish vassal state on their eastern edge, but the local Jews were less so, and so they revolted yet again. Antipater was poisoned, and a civil war broke out, and the Hasmoneans tried to wrest control from Herod and his brother. Uh, Phasaelus was captured. He ended up committing suicide while in jail, beat his head against the cell wall so that he wouldn't be tortured. But Herod, Herod escaped first to Masada, and then he made his way back to Rome, where he actually petitioned the Roman Senate, stood in front of the Roman Senate, and begged to be restored as the king of the Jews. They declared him king of Judea, and in order to solidify his claim as regent, he married a young Hasmonean princess, Miriam. Never mind that he already had a wife, Doris, and a son, Antipater, but he banished both of them. And in the company of the Roman army, Herod was returned to the Jewish throne. And now skittish about further insurrection, he ruled Judea with an iron fist. He also began a program of building vanity projects. He, he was known as Herod the Great, not for his ruling, but for his building. The first to prove to his populace that he was in fact uh, Jewish, even though his father had converted, um, was to greatly expand the temple in Jerusalem. At least this one was popular. Another was to create a port city on the Mediterranean where there was no natural harbor or breakwater. He hired Roman engineers to float giant stone blocks out into the, into the sea and then sunk them one on top of the other to create a safe harbor. 
an underwater wall that would protect the ships from the waves. In addition to the docks and warehouses, he built a palace for himself there, uh, complete with a private bathing pool and a personal box that opened onto an adjacent hippodrome where he could watch chariot races. And to express his loyalty to Rome, he dedicated it to Augustus, naming it Caesarea Maritima. A third was a function of his paranoia. It was a redesign and refortification of the ancient desert fortress of Masada. As I mentioned, he'd fled there when his father was poisoned, but now he took a barren military outpost and transformed it into a fortified palace that included balconies where he could sit and look out over the Dead Sea and maybe catch a breeze. He even had a Roman sauna installed, um, but because they were so far from forest and had no firewood, it was fueled by olive pits. Um, he also had the mountain honeycombed with cisterns to catch the rare rains, and he had weapons of, uh, caches of weapons and food. And it's estimated that he and a small army could have held out there for three years or more. There were others, and none of this came cheap. And to fund it, he imposed onerous taxes on his people. And that led to, of course, more complaining and grumbling, and of course, brought the threat of another revolt. And so he developed a network of spies that informed him of any hint of sedition. And he didn't hesitate to arrest, imprison, or murder political enemies. And once, as Matthew tells, tells us, he got wind of a prophecy that another heir to his throne had been born, and when he couldn't track down the exact child, he ordered his troop to kill every male under the age of two in the region of Bethlehem. Okay, now for some good news. There won't be a test on any of this. But it does beg the question, why share all of this convoluted and, yes, violent history with you this morning? It all sounds a lot more like the plot from Game of Thrones than a Christmas story, doesn't it? But friends, this is the story of Christmas. I think it is important to know and to remember what sort of world Jesus, Emmanuel, was entering. We sort of have a habit of sanitizing the history in Sunday school, and when it comes to the birth of Jesus, we want to focus on the manger and the angels with the good tidings and the shepherds coming and bowing down and the wise men with their gifts. And in so doing, we run the risk of not seeing how audacious what God was doing really was and is. <clears throat> Here comes the true king of the Jews, but not in the fashion that the world expected then or now. How risky it was to send a helpless child into a backwater little town like Bethlehem and simultaneously claim that he would someday redeem all of humankind but this is how God operates. If you were trying to predict when the prophetic promises made throughout the Old Testament were to come to fruition, I don't think you'd in a million years imagine they'd come to pass just as the Romans show up to put an end to the last vestige of the Jewish dynasty's legacy. I mean, how is the line of David ever to continue? But our God is a God of resurrection. And even in Christ's birth, we can find vestiges of this reality. From hopelessness comes hope, and from death, life. And that is what God did and what God is doing. And this is not to say that God stopped history. That wasn't God's plan. We still have massacres and genocides. The tyrant's names still resonate in history. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. But eventually their names will fade in history and will only be known by professors and maybe history nerds like me. 
but the name of Jesus will carry on, the Prince of Peace, until he comes in final victory. As I watched that 60 Minutes piece and I sat there seething in anger at what appeared to be Putin's personal war, I couldn't help but think, why? Why does the world keep running the same playbook? Have we not learned how to live in peace together? I know the answer, it's because humans are bound by sin, but we are also claimed by grace. As I sat and I watched, I was reminded of what Fred Rogers, as you know, a Presbyterian minister, used to share with parents when there was a catastrophe. He said, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words. And I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. And so there are. The doctors and the nurses, but also the taxi drivers and the train engineers who are moving sick children out of harm's way. A beautiful story in the face of ugly reality. And not just in Ukraine. All around the world are people who heard the good news that Christ was born in Bethlehem and live their lives accordingly. May it be true for us and our life in this body of Christ, in this place and this time. Amen.